Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. When good things happen to good people, I think we're all very happy for them, aren't we? When bad things happen to bad people, that's just simply just desserts. We might even celebrate. Uh, When good things happen to bad people, uh, we're confused, maybe enraged at the same time. How could this be? But when bad things happen to good people, some will cynically respond like one atheist writer in Sydney Morning Herald who wrote, shit happens to all of us. There's no rhyme or reason. Life is re- random and unfair. That's, that's just life. We're dealing with pain and cynicism, so pardon the four-letter word. The religious, like us, the moralistic response, however, is summed up by a character in a recently released four-part drama series on Stan, uh, Bali 2002. How many of you seen that? Okay, it's, it's, it's on offer. It's about the bombing that happened there. This character, a deeply religious Hindu, said, what did we do wrong to make the gods angry? What did we do wrong to make the gods angry? The premise there is, if we live good lives, then good things will happen to us. Therefore, if bad things happen to us, then we must have done something wrong to offend God. We must have done something wrong to upset God. For Christians, it might be, oh, maybe it's because I haven't prayed enough. Maybe it's because I haven't read the Bible enough. Maybe it's because I haven't gone to church enough. And that's why God is punishing me. That's why my, my life is not so blessed as it could be or should be. So I really need to pull out my spiritual socks and... Give more attention to God. We will see at the start of the book of Job, our sermon series for the next two months, that these responses to unfair and unjust suffering are wrong and spiritual dead ends. So right off the bat, we are introduced to Job as a godly, blameless, upright man, a man of complete integrity, someone who fears the Lord. Which, by the way, does not mean that Job was scared of God. Rather, he was someone devoted to God and in wonder and in awe of God. No one could throw mud at him and make it stick. And later on, indeed, we do find that Job is a compassionate man and a just man. And uh, in his dealings with, with people in his community, he's quite giving of himself. He's a loving father and a husband. Together with his wife, they're proud parents of 10 children, we're told, and each of them has their own home, which is very unusual for that time and even unusual for our time, unless you are super rich. And that is the evidence there that that Job is steep in God's favor, Uh, that uh, he becomes a very successful and wealthy businessman. But within a short space of time, Job's life becomes a living nightmare. He finds himself in great pain and great suffering, brought on by the sudden and tragic loss of all of his 10 children. Just try and cope with that. All 10 children taken away from you. And he loses his employees and he loses everything he owned. 
His faith in God is severely tested. He's confused, he's devastated, he is overwhelmed. He's crying out to God for answers. And he doesn't know what's hit him. Reflecting the normal customs of mourning, which is tearing of one's robe and shaving one's head, Job falls to the ground prostrate, but he refuses to attribute any wrongdoing to God. Whether God gives or takes away, he said, God is to be praised. God owes him nothing. But that's not the end of his pain and suffering. In chapter two, his health suddenly takes a turn for the worse. He's covered with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. By now, he's in such a bad state physically, not just mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, that when his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar pay him a visit, after hearing his suffering, they could hardly recognize him. We're told in chapter two, verse 13, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was, physically saw how great his suffering was. There's nothing more certain in life than suffering. There's nothing more certain in life than suffering. Whether that suffering comes through death, through illness, natural disasters, betrayal, loss, or heartache. Confusion, anger, grief are natural responses when we suffer or watch others suffer. And the book of Job and the Bible does not pull any punches in the manner it treats suffering with absolute philosophical integrity, emotional honesty, realism, the book of Job probes head on the great question of suffering, the whys of suffering, and the related questions of loss and grief. Now comes the disturbing part of the account. It seems, it seems God sanctioned all the terrible things that happened to Job so he can win a bet with Satan. It seems God sanctioned all of the bad things that happened to Job to prove that he's right. You'll be forgiven for asking what sort of God is this who would use someone as faithful and godly as Job, someone God himself highly esteemed as pawns in bets with Satan. Is that what is going on? Is that what's happening here? So this morning, I want to unpack, I want to tackle uh, three things from our text. Number one, the disturbing conversation between God and Satan. Number two, Satan's astute observation about human behavior. And third, the asymmetrical relationship of God to suffering and evil. So first thing we want to look at is the uncomfortable, disturbing conversation between God and Satan. In Job 1, 6 to 8, we're given a glimpse of a great heavenly council with God and the angels and with Satan present that Job nor his friends know, know anything about even at the end of the story. Job does not get told that this is what started uh, his suffering. Are we to conclude that these discussions occur frequently? 
And what is Satan doing there in the first place? Wasn't he cast out of heaven? And how come God lets Satan get away with how he displays complete disrespect to him? Notice Satan doesn't bow to God. What is going on here? Now, biblical authors are renowned for being selective in what they tell us. The best response to these questions is just to accept that the author of Job has given us enough vital information for us to get the gist of the story. Let us not speculate. Let us not be dogmatic about matters that are not in view in the account or impressed for details, for instance, about angels and demons and the supernatural world for which the Bible provides little data on. Let's not conclude either that the conversation between God and Satan precedes every event of suffering. There are some sufferings that are very self-inflicted. There are some sufferings that are inflicted by evil people. Yeah? So don't get the idea that before every event of suffering, we have a conversation between God and Satan. Let's keep in mind too that the book of Job is indisputably in the genre category of wisdom literature, not historical literature. And as such, it makes no claims about the nature of the events that we just read. Any discussions about whether these events are real is misplaced. All we need to know is Satan is real and he's a thief who comes to kill, who comes to steal, who comes to destroy. But Jesus has given us authority to overcome Satan and all the power that he has. And if we submit ourselves to God and resist him actively, he will flee from us. And lastly, we have this reminder from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that we may do all the words of this law. So God in his infinite wisdom may not and will not reveal everything to us, but it doesn't mean that we have to walk blindly. He has given us enough information. He's given us enough knowledge to do something productive with it. So in the realm of what we don't know, let's not speculate and certainly not build a doctrine or create a doctrine around something that's merely speculative. The second thing is Satan's astute observation, not just about Job, but about human behavior. One of the big problems of human behavior. God begins his conversation with Satan by commending Job to him. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless, he's upright, he's a man who fears the Lord and shuns evil. Satan immediately counters does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? What did Satan mean? Well, Satan is questioning Job's real motive for loving God. He's basically saying, God, the reason why Job loves you, the reason why Job devotes himself to you is because of what's in it for him. His relationship with you is purely transactional. It's not intimate. He doesn't fear you for you. He doesn't love you for you, 
but for the things he's getting from you. He loves the status, he loves the power, he loves the position, he loves the money, he loves the houses, he loves the health, he loves the wealth, his wife and his children more than you. He's a fraud, he's a mercenary. He lives for himself. He lives to serve himself. And he's using you to do this. That's all he is, a fraud, a total fraud. Just take away your blessings from him. Just remove the protection from him. Just remove your favor from him. And we will see his true colors. He will curse you to your face. He will walk out on you. He will drop you like a hot potato. He doesn't love you for yourself. He loves himself and serves himself ultimately. You're just a means to an end. Is Satan right about Job? The answer is yes and no. It's clear Job doesn't love God just for his blessings. God knows that. Because at the end of chapter two, when most of God's blessings are removed from Job, he continues to worship God, right? May the Lord's name be praised. In that state when he loses everything, even his health, he's still saying, may the Lord's name be praised. God knew Job loved him. But his love did need refining. As the book progresses, we do see Job's self-centeredness. He does blame God. When he becomes very evil, uh, becomes very ill, he does get cranky at God, even though he doesn't curse God in his lament in chapter 3. Now, while he's not a complete mercenary, he doesn't yet love God for himself. And the only way for Job to learn to do that was through his suffering. And Job did become such a great man of faith who has inspired thousands and continues to inspire more to this day. This is in such a contrast to pagan religion that says live right so that suffering doesn't happen to you. Even Christians buy into that theology. Just live right. Just give your tithes regularly. That's how you stave off suffering. You honor God, God will honor you. You live right for God, then your life will go right. It's called the retribution principle, which says that the righteous will prosper while the wicked will suffer proportionally to their righteousness and wickedness. But the book of Job clearly and elsewhere in the Bible clearly says not always, not always. Job and many more saints of old live right, but yet suffered, yet suffered. Not in spite of their faith, but on many occasions because of their faith in God. The third thing I want to unpack is this. If the conclusion we make from God's conversation with Satan is that God is wanting to win a bet against Satan at Job's expense, then we miss the author's point completely. Rather, the dialogue is getting across a very profound and unique philosophical and religious viewpoint about the asymmetrical relationship of God to suffering and evil. You see, the world is not dualistic with equal and opposing forces of good and evil 
battling for supremacy. You find that idea in the yin and yang, yin and yang symbol. See? Forces of evil and good fighting and battling for supremacy. That is not a Christian thought. That is an Eastern religious religion thought. The Bible shows us that God is completely in charge. Notice how when God agreed for Job to be put to the test, he tells Satan what he can and can't do. Do you notice that? He permits, but he limits Satan at the same time. Verses 9 to 12, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his household and everything he has? But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man you're not to lay a finger. The other thing we see is God is not the author of evil and suffering. It was Satan's idea to inflict suffering on Job, not God's. And furthermore, it was Satan who inflicted the suffering on Job, not Satan. I give you permission, God says, to inflict suffering on Job. But on the man, you will not, you will not, you will not be able to kill him. You will not be able to take his life. But everything else you may touch. But it was Satan who inflicted the suffering, not God. So God is not the author of evil and suffering. When God made the world, he said, what? It is very, very good. It was not a place of death. It was not a place of disease. It was not a place of destruction, despair, evil, and suffering. The presence in the world is the result of humanity turning away from God and unleashing the powers of darkness upon the world in the process. God is complete light, we're told in John. There is no shadow of darkness in God's character. He's incapable of evil. He's incapable of sin. He's incapable of any kind of dark thoughts. While God is not the author of evil and suffering, he allowed it in Job's life, but only to the degree that it defeats Satan's plan and accomplishes his good purpose for Job. He only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself, if you like. Remember, Satan's mission was to discredit, right? Was to discredit Job as a fraud. But all he ended up doing was turning Job into a hero of faith, a great servant of God and a great friend of God. Hundreds of thousands of lives, as I said earlier, have been transformed through Job's example of courage, faith, honesty, humanity in the face of acute pain and suffering. And the greatest example of this is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's plan was to inflict suffering upon Jesus and ultimately death upon Jesus, which he did. God allowed his son to be inflicted with suffering and allowed his son to give up his life, to be crucified. But what happened? Just when Satan thought he had won, he didn't win at all. He lost big time. 
the very instrument that Satan used, thinking in his, in his lack of wisdom, thinking that he could inflict pain upon God. God used it, sanctified it, redeemed it, turned it, turned on its head, and used it to bring salvation to mankind. So what's happening here to Job is very similar to what happened to Joseph in Genesis. Remember, his brothers hatched and carried out their plan to destroy him because of their jealousy and bitterness. But God used it to refine Joseph and turn him into a great servant of God. And remember Joseph's words to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Evil, suffering, wickedness will not have the last say because God is in absolute control. God is infinitely wise and God is perfect in his love. That's why whatever you go through, inexplicable things that you go through, you need not lose heart. It's tough, I know. It is horrendous, I know, and we'll probably oscillate as... as, as, uh, as uh, uh, Holly was telling us and reminding us earlier, but and at the end of the day, we can hang on, we can stand firm because God is in absolute control of our situation. He's infinitely wise, even though we can't see wisdom and what's, why God has allowed whatever it is that is happening to us. And he's also perfect in his love. So what? So we come to that part of the message where we consider the implication of what we've heard. So what? Two things. Number one, do you fear God for nothing? The accusation that he brings to Jacob, he brings to all of us. In the presence of God, he says the same thing. Does Rose fear God for nothing? Does Way and Naomi fear God for nothing? Does Sandra fear God for nothing? Does Peter and Gloria, do Peter and Gloria fear you for nothing? Is Satan right about you and I, about that accusation? Is our devotion and service to God for God himself? Or are they just means to an end? How many of you have seen the movie Amadeus? Anybody here? It was released in 1984. Have you seen it? Put your hand up. Okay, all right. That's a brilliant movie. If you haven't seen it, seen it, let me encourage you to go watch it. It follows a fictional rivalry, fictional rivalry between Mozart, the famous musician, and an Italian composer by the name of Antonio Salieri. So let me issue a, a spoiler alert right now, okay, for those of you who haven't seen it, but you still enjoy it. In the opening, opening scene, it's my favorite scene in the entire movie, where Salieri, an old man now, is in a mental institution, convinced that he had killed Mozart. The conversation begins with Salieri asking a priest who had come to com comfort him if he had a had a musical background. And when the priest reveals that he had studied music in Vienna, and that was the capital of you know, music back in those days, Salieri plays a few notes on the piano and asks if he has heard that piece before. The priest says no. 
and Salieri is visibly upset and reveals that he wrote the piece. Salieri then plays another set of notes from another composition of his and the priest draws a blank again. In frustration, Salieri pronounces that he was once the most famous composer in Europe and that he had written 40 operas in his lifetime. Then Salieri plays one final set of notes, but this time the priest recognizes it and tells Salieri that it was a charming piece. But he apologizes to Salieri that he had no idea that Salieri had written it. And Salieri, with a cynical and bitter expression on his face, tells the priest that it was his archenemy, Mozart, who had written it. The priest decides at this point to ask if Salieri really killed Mozart. In response, Salieri begins talking about his past from when he was a teenager. He was filled at a very young age with passion for music, but his father hated music. Finding his dream of being a musician out of reach, he said to the priest, and I quote, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak of my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, in return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. It was very sincere. Following the death of his father, young Salieri studied music diligently in Vienna. He keeps his promise to God. He keeps his hands off women. He gives free music lessons to many musicians and tirelessly helps the poor. He would become eventually a tutor to the emperor of, Mozart, of Austria himself. God, it seems, has kept his side of the bargain. He's enjoying life, he's thriving, he's grateful to God, he celebrates God, he praises God. Until Mozart shows up in Vienna. He could see from the start that Mozart's musical abilities are off the charts, so off the charts that they could only come from God. Mozart's middle name, Amadeus, means beloved by God. However, Mozart is nothing but an obscene, arrogant, spoiled, immoral, self-indulgent man. This enrages Salieri even more. Not only that, Mozart belittles Salieri's musical 
abilities. And this precipitates a crisis of faith in Salieri. In a state of anger and disbelief, he tells the priest, it was incomprehensible what I was witnessing. Here I was denying all of my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart indulging his in all directions, even though engaged to be married and no rebuke at all. Salieri has devoted his life to God. His reward, mediocre, mediocre musical skills. Mozart, on the other hand, despite being morally bankrupt, God bestows upon him with exceptional musical talent. Finally, Salieri says to God as a young man, quote, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you chose for your instrument a boastful, infantile boy, because you are unjust, unfair, and unkind as he throws the cross into the fireplace. And from that day onwards, he made it his mission to destroy Mozart. Is our devotion and service to God for nothing? Or are we like Salieri in that our relationship with God is purely transactional? That is, God, if you do this for me, I will in turn do that for you. Maybe we can go one up. God, I will do this for you. And I hope that you will do that for me. Now, I think for most of us, when we first came to God, it was because of a problem that we had. It was because of a need that we had, that needed fixing and a need it meant. And when God duly obliged, we handed the reins of our lives to him. Yes, Lord, thank you for answering my prayer. Yes, I believe you now. Yes, you are real. I give you my life. I give you my all. And we may even continue to live like that with God. And we continue to come to God with problems and with our needs. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we are meant to mature from that transactional approach to God. Do we get that? There's nothing. Don't hear this morning that it's from me that it's wrong to come to God with your needs and wants. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying if your relationship consists primarily of that kind of an approach, if that's how you approach God as Father, as Santa Claus, that's problematic. Instead, we continue treating God like a vending machine where he has a moral obligation to reward us with blessings and give us what we want, when we want, how we want it. Because we believe we have earned that right through our coins of good deeds and service. And when God doesn't, we feel he has reneged on his promise to us. In response, we sulk, we throw our toys out of the cot and we withdraw from God. I know so many people, I can list off names of people who've done this to God because God, they perceive, has reneged on his promise. 
Now, have you ever been in a relationship like that where someone shows a keen interest in you, but not for you, but because they're after something you have, and when they have gotten what they want or don't get what they want, they're no longer interested in you. Anybody been in a relationship like that? You've been ghosted because you've just, you're just a stepping stone to something. And once they've reached their goal, once they've obtained what they want from you and through you, you're no longer useful to them. They drop you like a hot potato. They were not interested in you for you, but only for what they can get from you and through you. How did that make you feel, being in a relationship like that? Feeling being used. And how do you think God feels when we treat him like that? Brothers and sisters, if our relationship with God remains transactional like Salieri, be warned, be warned. Your faith will crumble like a house of cards. You're like the seed which falls on rocky places where there's not much soil. According to Jesus in Matthew 13, that seed represents someone who hears the word, receives it with joy, but they have no root. They only last for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So be warned. If your relationship is transactional like Salieri, your faith in God is akin to building a house on a sand. That we, can, that we think we can come to God like Salieri shows how little we understand the gospel. God is our God. God favors us. God chooses us. Not because we deserve it. Not even in exchange for a promise to behave and live good lives. Which by the way we will not be able to accomplish 100% of the time. God is our God. God favors. God blesses us because of his grace and mercy alone. Which is offered freely to us. That's it. And Jesus could not be any clearer on this. In John chapter 10, verse 18, he said, no one, no one can take my life from me. I hand it over. I lay it down voluntarily. I lay it down not because I have to, but because I want to. And in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God owes us nothing. And the second thing is this. Will you keep faith? in God when you go through hard times? Will you keep faith in God when you go through hard times? Does Job fear God for nothing? God knew that Satan was ultimately wrong about Job. Sure, Job didn't love God just for himself, but it was also clear that he did not love God just for his blessings either. God knew that. And yet, God backs Job to the hilt. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's so proud. God is so proud of Job. Even though he knew that his love for him was not perfect and needed refining. Yet God esteemed Job. This is my servant. There's no one like him on earth. He's blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I so love this about God. When Satan accuses and discredits us, God stands by us. But when Satan accuses and discredits God, what do you do? Do you hear that? When Satan accuses us and discredits Job and us, God stands by us. 
But what do we do when Satan accuses and discredits God? What do we do? For me, I bind to Satan's accusations and lies about God. Yeah, God is not good. Yeah, something, something fishy is happening here. Not fair. That's right. Yes, you're right, Satan. God is not fair. He does owe me, doesn't he? I am entitled, you are right, I'm entitled to this. I have bent over backwards for God. On so many occasions, you are absolutely right about God. He can stick it up where it belongs. You're, yeah, I agree with you. Despite this, God remains faithful, gracious, and kind to me. But it doesn't mean my response has not stung him. It doesn't mean that my response has not grieved the heart of God. See, the book of Job is not about suffering per se, but it's about whether we will keep faith in God in the midst of inexplicable suffering. Through Jesus' suffering on the cross, we learn that what matters most to God is our relationship, is our faith relationship with him. In times of incomprehensible pain and adversity, God calls us, God appeals to us to trust him, to keep faith in him. Will we do this? By his spirit, we can. Let me close with a quote by C.S. Lewis in a satirical work, The Screwtape Letters, where a senior demon writes to a junior demon giving him advice while he's out on field assignment. In one of his letters, the senior demon says to the junior demon, be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys and still keeps faith in God. That's the sort of person I want to be. Is that the sort of person you want to be? In times of acute pain and adversity, we hang in, we keep faith in God. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.